Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, the season four premiere. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Happy season four, Courtney. Happy season four, Ben. Do you remember how, this is sort of a trivia question out of nowhere for you, sorry, do you remember how season four of 30 Rock started? Where they were all at a restaurant called season four and they were <laughs> eating cheesy blasters? They were. I might splice the audio of that in. Please do. Please, Please do. Just to throw people off the rails real quickly in this show. All right, cheesy blasters. You take a hot dog, stuff it with some jack cheese, fold it in a pizza. You got cheesy blasters. And then all the kids say, thanks, Meat Cat. And then Meat Cat flies away on his um skateboard. How's it going for you? Welcome to 2015. How does it feel? Thank you. 2015 feels good so far. Although, you know, a weird thing is that I kind of fell into this weird hole of reading all of these like horoscopes for 2015. Okay. And I was reading them for like a bunch of different zodiac signs. And from what I can tell, 2015 is going to be a pretty horrible year. Oh, no. For like 80% of the people in this world. Oh, boy. So I'm not really excited about that. And that kind of put a damper on my general excitement on 2015, which so far has been pretty good. So, but I am a little cautious now about this year. I'm not much into horoscope stuff, but... I did really enjoy your explaining why you were screwed by being <laughs> a nighttime snake, nighttime winter snake. Nighttime winter snake, yes. Explain that to people. Because you just had a birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yes, I had a birthday. I hate my birthday. I hate birthdays in general, but I hate my birthday in particular because that's the only one that you can really have any right to hate on because everybody else, it's their birthday, whatever. Do what you do. I don't know. You know, it's your birthday. Do you? But yes, my mom told me on my birthday something that I would not heard before, which is that I always knew that I was born January 6th and I was born in the evening, around 745 in the evening, and I'm the year of the snake. And she was telling me that according to the Chinese Zodiac, if you're a snake born at night, the, the fortune tellers tell you that you're going to have a really hard life because you're going to be very hardworking and that you'll have a really hard life because you that's when snakes have to hunt, right? During the day, they like sleep around and it's awesome and life is good. And then at night, they go and they hunt. And so the fact that on top of all that, I was born in the dead of winter in the year of the snake in January, that makes it even worse because that's like the worst time for snakes. As opposed to like if you're a snake that's born like during the day in like the summertime, apparently like you have like a super lazy life and everything comes real easy to you. But anyway, so my mom explains to me that. And then I proceed to like, I just grill her like about every single, I'm like, what about this? And what about that? Like, uh-huh. what about like, like my sister is a year of the pig and she was born in the evening also. And my mom was like, oh, no, she was born after dinner. Like, it's like pigs. Like, they, you know, after dinner, they're like a belly full of food and they just like sleep the whole night. Like, her her life is easy. I'm like, what the hell, man? <laughs> what is this about? Like, and it's just, it was very, very interesting. Um, but yeah, you can find a lot of this stuff on the internet, but I had never heard it before. So it was quite interesting. So go. basically, I'm hosed because not only is my life super hard, uh, and thankfully, I'm a hard worker, so it makes it somewhat easier, but 2015 is going to suck balls. I think I was a midday rabbit in the winter. I don't know what that means. But... A midday winter rabbit. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google that, and by Google, I mean I'm gonna ask my mom. There you go. And but... see what, and I'll, I'll get back to you, Ben. It's the best kind of Google there is. And if yeah. you guys have, I would say, submit your own horoscope request to Courtney's mom, but feel free. I, I might overload feel free. her. Yeah. Tammy's happy to answer it. <laughs> I, I keep want, I keep wanting Tammy to start a Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> Because she's fucking hilarious. My mom is hilarious. There you go. Sometimes intentionally, but mostly unintentionally. But she could be a fortune teller to Twitter. She'd be happy to do it. That is a niche that I'm sure has already been filled by somebody, but it could use more. It it could use more, and it could use my mom. There you go. So on this show, we're going to start off the 2015 season with you know first impressions and some of the early news out of the gates. Not a whole lot has happened yet. It's less than a week into the season. We're not even through the first week tournaments, but uh, we're already off and running, and it's pretty scary how fast the season actually gets going when it gets going. So let's play some catch-up. So, Courtney, what are your early on, midway through these first week tournaments, what are your impressions? What What has stuck out to you the most so far in the 2015 season? 
So far, I've been very impressed by Maria Sharapova. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that of all of the WTA players, she has looked the sharpest. Now, this is based off of two matches, but she, you know, didn't necessarily have an easy go in either of them in terms of her opponents. And um, she's just hit the ball really, really clean. Yeah, I thought the Suarez-Navarro match would be much tougher than it was. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that was more of a credit to Maria than the fact that Carl played poorly, you know? Totally. So I've been incredibly impressed by her. Um, Caroline's been pretty good. Venus has been pretty good. I mean, Caroline, for the most part, has been been great, except for a little blip against Taylor Townsend, um, where she just kind of lost her way a little bit. She's been a bit on edge. She's been, like, arguing calls for really no reason. Like, just accept the fact that there's no Hawkeye in Auckland, Caroline. It's such a weird thing that she does. It's so weird. Like... Just it's just such a weird little glitch of hers. Yeah. But she's playing great. I mean, tactically, she's playing she's playing really well. Uh Venus is 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 surviving into the semis of Auckland as we record this. So I mean, those three I've been pretty impressed with on the women's side. On the men, uh Novak's been lights out. Um Rafa was terrible. Yeah. And we haven't seen Roger play yet. So yeah, so that that's generally and, and I think that Andy Murray has actually played pretty darn well to start the season. I have to say. So I've been impressed by him. Let's. Let, I'm going to start with the last thing you said about Andy Murray. Um, because before, I guess it was technically, was it already in 2015 when Abu Dhabi happened? Or was it, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it yeah, was. 2015, uh, Abu Dhabi happened and Murray won it, quote unquote, won the exhibition with, with a walkover from Djokovic in the final. For that, he just absolutely killed Rafael Nadal 2-0. and and you don't see Rafael Nadal getting beat 2-0. And it's weird that we've had these matches now, uh, quite a few on the top of the game, where Murray has gotten blow- the doors blown off by Federer in London. Nadal, even though in exhibition, I don't see him losing 2-0 in any situation very often. Serena got woodshedded by Bouchard, weirdly, and looked totally absent during Hopman. We'll get to that later. But what do we read into those specifically to Murray Nadal results. Anything we read into these exhibitions? And I guess if you want to expand to Hopman to the extent that's an uh, exhibition too, that's also fine. I put Hopman into a weird category that's yeah. above, but it's above a pure exhibition. Like it's it's more than Abu Dhabi. It's more than Kuyong. It's its own category. It really is. Yeah, because they're, they are actually playing for something, maybe not rankings points, but yes, okay, it's a diamond tennis ball, but it's a thing. Yeah. And, and it is a warm-up t- tournament that's being used in advance of a slam. And for some of those people who are playing that tournament, it's their only tournament, you know? So those three matches, those three singles matches that they play, sure, the mixed might be completely exotastic, but at least with the singles matches, I do think that players go into it wanting to, you know, really play, go out full and, and get the wins and and to build their confidence. So I I put in a separate category. Now, whether or not the players do, I mean, Serena, you know, I mean, she's never been great in exhibitions. No, uh, yes. Exhibition Serena is shocking sometimes. It's a different beast. But the thing that was surprising to me about her loss to Bouchard uh, in Perth was that I just kind of really was shocked that she would let that happen. Like, okay, like if she got like, woodshedded by Flavia that's like one thing makes more sense I guess it makes a little bit more sense that she maybe wouldn't care so much or like okay I'm gonna give you this like whatever like I don't really care I'm checking out it's fine I get that but because I have jet lag because we have to remind everyone she did arrive in Perth like literally the day before she was supposed to take the court which is insane that is not I think that's honestly disrespectful to the tournament on some level on some level it could be yeah. yeah I mean, that, you know, yeah, I mean, that like, doesn't make any sense if you want to if you're going to go on court and compete against top twenty legitimate players. Yeah. In live matches, yeah, doesn't make right. doesn't make sense to me at all. Or to you know come and get a big paycheck and not be and put yourself in a position voluntarily not to be able to play your best tennis. Right. And you know and, and to 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 quote unquote put on a show for the crowd that that's not an ideal sitch. But although she did the coffee thing was pretty miraculous. Yeah. And no, that went viral and it was it that led was fun. Sports Center. That was fun. It yeah, was fun. It led Sports Center at six six p.m. Sports Center. There was like a four minute segment on Serena ordering coffee. Yeah. Tennis. It's alive, as Ricky Diamond says. <laughs> Tennis got a shot of espresso, and it is alive. Um, and then had yeah, a horrible like, crash guess, a few hours later. Well, that's the thing against Bouchard. I mean, I just think that I'm just a little surprised that even if it's an exhibition, even if Serena's like over it, that 
she kind of just lets that happen because Serena never really looked fully engaged in that match. Like she never looked like super frustrated. And so I'm just kind of like, why would you let an ingenue beat you? Like have that just to have that win. Like that seems to me. It's an I made you, know, you situation. Like it is. Ja- an I made Janie you is somebody who's coming up from the rear, you know, charging is the next big thing is a next great, you know, slam champ contender shortlist person, whatever. And another yeah, it girl, another, another young blonde it girl. Exactly. And yeah. so, yeah, we, we've seen how, how Serena has treated various it girls in her career on court, be it, you know, Sharapova, obviously the most, most famous example of that, but also even Sloan. You have the sense that she saw Sloan coming for her spot a little bit and really got much more invested in that matchup. And with Jeannie, yeah, you think there'd be something similar, but there just wasn't at all it was very weirdly flat i just was so confused and unimpressed by that match from serena but i don't know if it really means anything at all for melbourne i doubt but I it, it was it just a, anything it was just a weird way to spend an hour yeah like i said i just i just really didn't think that serena would want to give genie that win and, and it just kind of looked like she did now you know nowadays they do share the same agency the same agent like maybe yeah. that softens it a little bit um you know the win definitely helped genie from a publicity perspective and everything like that so i don't know but it i don't know it was just surprising i i thought that she'd be a little bit more engaged um but that being said you know jet lag if you legitimately have it is is a tough thing to you know get over especially if you're an elite athlete who has to who's expected to go out there and go a thousand percent so that's the other side of it and since neither ben or i are in perth to grill serena williams (laughs) about what's up you know we're left to speculate but and that's, yeah. I will say, nobody is grilling Serena in Perth because I think maybe, I don't think we ever mentioned it on the show, but Hotman Cup has this weird press setup where players are really pretty sheltered. They don't have to do a lot of interviews. Because yeah, you've, you've, you've covered Hotman as, an, as a, a journalist. I haven't. Yeah. I went there in 2012. It was one of the first tournaments I ever did for the Times. Actually, it might have been, might have been the first time I ever did for the Times uh, on site. And yeah, it was just, there was no ATP or WTA or really ITF. Maybe ITF has stepped in a little bit more lately, but it's just sort of this weird no man's land press wise. And it was very hard getting stuff done. And so, but I think, and I think the players probably enjoy that, especially someone like a Serena, like a Bouchard, where they don't have to do obligatory press and, you know, wear themselves out. I think it's probably a a high point. So for when things happen, like that weird result, they also don't have to answer to it necessarily right after. Right. They just kind of rely on the on-court television interview. And if you're a loser, you don't do that. Exactly. So there you go. It's tougher to know. But yeah, so uh, a little curious about Serena, but I don't think that that's going to have any impact on in Melbourne. I think by then she will be obviously fully recovered from the trip and motivated as ever uh, to try and get number 19. But Rafa, what do we make of Rafa? Yeah, I was going to get to Rafa next. Rafa's, Rafa, because um, I, you know, I tweeted things that were, I guess, pessimistic about both of those matches and got great reactions from both fan bases of the Rafa and Serena fan bases springing to defense as always. So I appreciate that guys as always, those are always rational. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, they are right. Those, those it's it's (laughs) tough. I mean, like it's a sidebar. Is this a sidebar now about this? I just think that there, Ben and I were talking a little bit offline this week about now that we're on kind of the writing side of things and, you know, kind of have to are required in many situations to put our opinions out there uh-huh. and to be obviously held accountable for them because you do put them out there. Mm-hmm. You know, that totally makes sense. And that is fair. But there are definitely some fan bases that are nicer about it and some fan bases that are not nice about it. And yeah, like I have to say the Serena fan base can get a little nasty. I don't think the Rafa fan base gets nasty. I just think that they 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 get very they get very mad. Eh, <laughs> um, depends. But uh, I don't know. They're, well, they aren't. I don't think that they're nasty with me. Maybe they're nastier with you. They but, definitely are. But that's that's yeah. fine. If they, they if they feel like I deserve that, that's their prerogative. Free speech. Right. Charlie exactly. happy. Whatever. Like Federer fans are very scoreboard. Yeah. They're very like, well, what have you done with your career? Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, you know, like he's one, you know. X number of slams. Like, he doesn't have to prove anything to you. Like, that fe- sort of thing. Which is totally Federer. fair. I'm like, and it's totally also very right. Federer. I mean, Federer, Federer doesn't seem like a... Um, as a way he carries himself in press, you never get the sense that he's insecure about his legacy. Right. So... Yeah. They, they Murray fans are very... You're right. He's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> 
like, why are you guys even talking about him winning another slam? It's so emo. It's great. I love it. It's pretty good. But anyways, it was actually kind of funny to kind of like if you talk to different writers who are on Twitter, everybody kind of has their like, oh, man, yeah, these guys hate me. And people, diff- sort of, yeah, you know, everyone, everyone, different segments hate different, different writers. Everyone is, is pissed off too. some different segment for reasons that aren't always <laughs> immediately clear, but probably... And yeah, we just get sort of stuck with that for a while. But I, but I always do like fall back every time I get kind of sad or I kind of get like I let it get under my skin a little bit, or like I feel like I'm being misunderstood. Like I always think back to like Matt Cronin, who always says like, "So long as you're getting it from both sides, you're doing it right." I'm like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So there are definitely those moments where it's like, "You're so in the bag for Federer," like you might as well put you on the payroll. And then it's like, "Oh, everybody knows you hate him." Like, and it's like back to back tweets. You're like, "All right, that's fine." Yeah. But anyways, yeah. Anyway. Given that. That Serena and Rafa had had kind of eyebrow-raising weeks. weeks. It was all of that kind of came, bubbled back up. Yeah. To Rafa, I think the term I used, my tweet basically, I don't remember it verbatim, verbatim, but it was something like, um, obviously he's proven people wrong before, but it's there's no getting around how mediocre Nadal's results have been since the French Open. And it's hard to be too hopeful about his Melbourne chances. And I completely think that's an objective statement. I mean... Rafael Nadal, after this loss to Barrere, which I think is his worst loss of all of them since the French Open, because Barrere is not any sort of player to get excited about. I mean, I think he's lost three matches. I forget what Dustin Brown was ranked, but he's lost at least three matches in the last um, six, seven months to guys ranked outside the top 100, which is just not big four type results right. i can't remember anybody else in that stretch doing that he's only seven and six which is a really mediocre result uh record for a big four guy and i know that he's been playing at not full strength or whatever but he's still been playing and even with all those asterisks you want to put on it like these actual win-loss records are really not good the rares are really it's not like a curios who was on this great run and was playing really well or not even like a chorich i mean but rafa was terrible against chorich was probably in no shape to play physically in that match Barrera's just a very not special player, and for him to lose to him ever was really pretty, has to be pretty unsettling for Rafa, I would think. Yeah, I mean, the numbers all point to this being a really, not unprecedented, but for a long stretch of time, unprecedented uh, stretch of a few months for Rafael Nadal. And obviously, like you said, there's there are absolutely extenuating circumstances, and you know, whether it's appendicitis or a freak, you know, wrist injury, all these sorts of things, like, obviously, those play into explaining the results. But, you know, so they, they do raise red flags. Does it matter for the Australian Open to me? And does it matter? Like, does all the is all the panic justified, I guess, is my kind of hypothetical question or rhetorical question I'm throwing out there that I will still answer. And to me, I think that the panic isn't necessarily justified yet. I think that if Rafa doesn't do anything particularly special at the Australian Open, I'm not going to really freak out about it. I'm not going to be even all that concerned. I mean, the bottom line is like, what is Rafa? To me, the metric for Rafa is really what he does on clay. And if he goes into the Golden Swing, the South American Golden Swing, and doesn't perform well there, I will raise an eyebrow. If he doesn't win the French Open, I will definitely raise an eyebrow. And I think that at that point, then maybe more of the 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 discussion about the course of Rafael Nadal's career kicks into high gear in a more justified way right. in May. But up until then, I, I'm kind of of a let's just sit back and, and see, uh, because for Rafa, as we've seen in the past when he's gone through these comebacks, it just takes one shot, one match, oh, yeah. one, you know, and it just clicks for him. And it just doesn't seem like he's had that yet. Although, you know, in the course of the three, he's played three matches, official and unofficial, to start the season. He did win one, which was a win over Vavrinka in Abu Dhabi. So, you know, he's not like... A t- you know a sub 100 player right, no, that's true. <laughs> you know i mean he's he's he, he has it there he just has to get it all in line yeah i think that's right i agree with the not time to long-term panic about his career but i do think going into the australian open he is not i would put him behind obviously behind djokovic for chances to win i would put him behind federer i would put him behind murray i would put him behind vavrinka probably i just think he's going into this tournament with, Would you put him behind Nishikori? Ooh, n- uh, no. Okay. Just because Nishikori hasn't done it before. Um, sure. But not depending on the draw, maybe I would be more likely to pick Nishikori. I could see situations where Nishikori, that'd be an interesting quarterfinal if it happened. 
Uh, Very, because that's the match that kicked off Kay's 2014. He right. lost in straight sets, but it was an incredibly good match for him. He had opportunities. He lost two, I think, tough tiebreakers maybe. But that was the match. Even for me, that when I saw it, I was like, this kid is actually legit. Like, yeah. he, he might win something. Rafa but played well that match, too. Rafa did. Rafa, and Rafa had to play well. Yeah. That was a, that'd be such a, that'd be such a a Stan Redux if the great fourth round match yeah, from the year before comes back in the quarterfinal and after the kids close but not quite U.S. Open run he breaks through in Australia oh that'd be so parallel I kind of hope that happens now I keep wanting to like write a post somewhere write it for anybody who will take it uh-huh. that's just basically like the five like narratives. Like, the five best narratives that could come out of the Australian Open. That's a pretty good idea. That's a really Like, you know what I mean? And yeah. that's, like, one of them. It's it's that whole thing. You know, not the simple ones of, like, Roger finally breaks through and wins and is 18th. That would be amazing at Wimbledon. It kind of wouldn't be, like, mega amazing at the Australian Open. Right. But, like, yeah, I feel like that whole K full circle thing or even a Grigor the same thing because it happened to him last year also would be compelling. I, Anyways, I sorry. Agree. I agree with all that. That's, those are good things. Yeah, Rafa, I don't know. I just think that overall... He needs to get comfortable and get matches. He just hasn't played that many matches lately, but it, it takes him a while. And the same thing with Azarenka a little bit, the way she lost in Brisbane. She, I think, and that was a tougher, much more respectable loss, I think. Yeah. The Pliskova played really well, especially at the end. She was hitting some crazy, crazy passing shots. But yeah, somebody who needed matches and went out first round in their warm-up is not uh, the recipe for success, as per most people's cookbooks. So while Rafa has some question marks, um, some people just have sad ellipses, I guess, because they're not playing the Australian oh, Open at all. Uh, what's a sad punctuation mark? Is there a sadder one than ellipses? A colon and an open parentheses. Oh, obviously. Sprowny face. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Joe Wilfred Sanga has pulled out of the Australian Open with a forearm injury. Marin Chilich is looking unlikely to play. They're not officially out yet with elbow injury elbow injury right both of those guys played iptl in the fall which i'm not saying caused their injury but it's not a great look when i think it's a very much a told you so situation where we knew that these guys playing that deep into the season and really really shorting their off season was not going to help once 2015 came around and there'd be a high attrition rate on more happy news juan martin del potro who has not played since february is scheduled to come back in Sydney next week and the Australian Open as well. Despite still feeling some pain in his left wrist, he's like, to hell with this. Let me out of here. I'm back. <laughs> so what do you make of all of the, the medical watch, I guess, so far going on? I think I, I think I will. I would trade the two withdrawals for a Juan Martin Del Potro return. I'm incredibly excited to see him play in Sydney again. Um, whether he defends his title or not, I think that it'll just be nice to see him back on court, and he's just kind of a nice presence to have around. So he's just nice. He's yeah. a ni- he's just a nice dude. It's like just the gentle giant. It, there's no way around it. As for the other two, yeah, I mean, I think that we've said it before with the IPTL. I don't think that there's cause or effect. I don't think that you know, like anybody should be pointing and being like, wah wah, like look at you guys, like you played IPTL. But at the same time, like. I have a hard time accepting the fact that not playing IPTL and not taking that long flight across the world to Asia and instead staying home and playing PlayStation or rehabbing or whatever it may be might have been the better call for a person's body. I know I can I'm not a professional athlete, but if I take like a, you know, 14 hour flight, I'm pretty exhausted. Yeah. You know, even a 14-hour flight, stay somewhere for a week and then fly home takes me some time to get back back into things. and Especially IPTL where they were doing – especially Song, I think, played the whole slate of it. And he was traveling, you know, Manila, uh, India, Dubai. It was exhausting. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously they were paid a, a good amount of money and, and I'm not going to begrudge anybody from, no. from taking a big paycheck. But it just – it's tough, you know. I mean, Song is 29 years old. He's – Australian Open is the one slam he's done the best at. Uh, he loves it there. The crowd loves him. And for him to have to, to pull out is pre- is pretty tough. And Chilich, too. I mean, before the U.S. Open, the Australian Open was his best slam as well. So you take two players who excel in the hard courts and you take one of the two hard court slams away from them. Uh, that's not great. Especially the guy who won the last hard court slam and right? won his last 10 sets on slam hard court. So that's, uh, that's rough for him to miss it. And 
he had a chance. I mean, talking about this being a little bit of a, you know, narratives. I mean, Chelich was a total sleeper narrative in Melbourne if he had been healthy. I mean, can yeah. he back it up out of this, the most out of nowhere run? I mean, coming some, going somewhere where conditions should be good for him. I was very interested to see what Chilich would do in the first half of 2015. And so far, yeah. it's derailed. So it's just, it's just unfortunate. It, it's unfortunate. I mean, and again, Chilich hasn't said anything officially. Um, this was just a report from AFP. He's um, pessimistic, he said. He said he's, he, the quote is basically that he's pessimistic, but he could show up. He could be just downplaying expectation, et cetera, et cetera. But, if, you know, he will go into the Australian Open if he does play without any uh, tournament uh, play under his belt. So, you know, at that point, the the expectations are relatively low. But it's just tough because I think having won the final slam of the year back in September, beginning of September. Yeah. And then if he had to skip the Australian Open and there was not another slam until May, it's just a really long time to kind of go into hibernation yeah, for a slam that. champion. And you just kind of run the risk of very easily the story of Marin Cilic already being written as a fluke. Not because of anything he did or didn't do, but because we haven't seen him for so long, you know? Right. Disappeared, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's, it's a little tough, but... We'll see. There you go. One other player who we're going to segue to here, sort of awkwardly, who also played IPTL and also pulled out of a tournament with injury was Nick Kyrgios, who played quite a bit of IPTL and then pulled out of Hotman Cup, which was weirdly riddled by injuries for the eight originally slated guys pulled out this year. Also Stepanek, Songa, and one other person. Well, Ebden pulled out Ebden. and had to be replaced Ebden. by Matasevich uh, yeah. for the Aussies. It was a double Aussie pullout. And then... No one wants to play with Casey. <laughs> it was sad to blame her. Imagine her being... <laughs> that's so unlike Casey being this horrible, like, driving... Like Black Widow. Out. Yeah. <laughs> just so anti-Casey, who's just such a pleasant, she's harmless a person. Yeah. It's, yeah, she's really a very sweet person and can't imagine her ruining people in, in like a sequence of men coming and being destroyed by her. Anyway, that's amusing. But Mer- but Nick Kyrgios, speaking of amusing, Nick Kyrgios is part of a young generation we don't we haven't really met yet. I mean, he's kind of the first emissary across the horizon. And if they're anything like him and his buddy Borna Chorich, this could be a fun decade. Cordy, why don't you explain what happened with Borna Chorich this week? People, a lot of people on the show, even if you listen, might not entirely know who he is. Because he's really not anybody yet. But he had a fun week. He did have a fun week. Born a Chorich, youngster, 18? Yep. Is he 18? Yeah, 18 years old. Or 17. Um, was he 17? He was 17. I think he's 18 now. That's, Hold on, that's how it works, I guess. You were 17, yeah. now you're 18. I am 17, going on 18. What's going on? 18 that? years old, turned yeah. in the off season. That's okay. why we got the... the uh, 17 when he beat Nadal. 17 when he beat, beat Nadal, precisely, right? Yeah. Borna Chorich uh, gave an interview to the Times of India last week, I believe, or maybe this week, uh, in Chennai. And he basically said a, a couple of things. He was quoted as saying that he believes that he is the best of his generation. Not even believes, like, I am the best of my generation. I am it the best of my generation. Yeah. It was emphatic. It was definitely emphatic. And then I think the the bigger pull quote, the one that I think every, had everybody kind of rolling – and thinking, God, I hope this guy keeps running his mouth, is he said that when I'm at my best, this is a quote, quote, when I'm at my best, I am more like Djokovic game-wise. When I'm not, I'm more like Murray. <laughs> Which is amazing. And in, in, in Chorch's defense, I think that we all, I mean, if you take the literal things that he's saying uh, off the table, I think we all understand what he's getting at. We know that Djokovic is more of an aggressive player than Andy Murray. It's a thing that Murray gets criticized for before, in, you know, so... And Murray also in, gets lost in the woods more often than Djokovic. Exactly. So we can understand, you know, or he and Murray gets, you know, super negative and Chorch is a very emotional player. Yeah. So I can see what Chorch is trying to say there. But obviously, welcome to the world of, of, of public relations and media, born in Chorch. It got kind of run and everybody kind of started laughing about it. So there was that. And people, and people then, got upset, quote unquote, which again... People Did people get it. upset? I think people were like, you know, sit down, kid, kind of, about oh. it. Like, well, you know, know your place a little bit. Oh, I'm sad that people said that. I, I mean, my reaction was just like, oh, you're awesome. I know. That was completely my reaction, too. <laughs> and then Borna Chorich comes out today 
with this statement, um, PR statement, walking back both of those quotes, which just really made me sad because, like, own your mouth, you know, kick. And you didn't say anything wrong either. I mean, the one thing that needed clarifying maybe was when he said best of a generation, he meant he's the highest ranked player born in 96, which is right. correct. Actually, he won that award for future star of at the World Tour Finals where he was the highest, sorry, the youngest player in the top 100. So members back that up. Yep. Yeah. And the Murray thing was just funny. So you don't have to say exactly. I respect Andy Murray very much. Like, who cares? Like, it felt very unnecessary for him to walk any of that back because at the end of the day, is there's more swagger to just kind of shrug and be like, I know what I meant and I know what I meant to say. And I'm not really concerned about it. But their statement was released by his management company, Starwing Sports, which also represents uh, Stan Wawrinka as well as uh, Donna Vekic. Yep. You know, it is what it is. But it just it did make me think back to like to Ernest Golbus okay. and his whole rant about vampires <laughs> and his whole thing of like, I think that people should just be allowed to be who they are. And he was basically kind of conflating the concept of a vampire with agents and people that surround players like you know kind of asking them to tone down their personalities and things like that and it was one of those things i was just like uh let borna be borna yeah we don't even know him yet we're already putting him him on a leash come on let him run wild let him say what he said let him have his reckless youth he said nothing wrong yeah I mean, I just think in general, tennis apologies never go super great. The one that somebody conflated this to on Twitter, I don't remember who, but whoever you are, I think you're a smart person for this, is that they compared it a little bit to the awful, awful Ryan Harrison Olympic apology. Oh! Which yeah. was, which is, I, that's still one of my biggest regrets in tennis, and this not, this shows how few regrets I have, is that that, <laughs> is that never made it online or anywhere to be rewatched, and nobody ever recorded it or even transcribed it or anything. Because, like, the awkwardness of that thing where after Harrison threw his racket and stomped around and had a little bit of a tantrum at the, in, at the Olympics, in the first round of the London Olympics, losing to Santiago Geraldo, I believe, um, he then the next day was brought onto NBC's coverage on Bravo and sat there with Pat O'Brien, who was one of the strangest anchors in sports history during that week. And Justin Gimmelstadt was by his side too. And he sort of had this weird apology where he kept saying he was sorry and that he, that, but they were all sure he was going to grow up to be a great player. And honestly, Harrison has not been the same since that. That, if you want to look at a moment that derailed huh. Harrison's career, it was that. I mean, really, the before and after of his ranking. He was top 50 when that happened, and he is now way out of the top 150. So, I mean, in the sort of archaeology of digging up what went wrong, that's a pretty interesting place to have your shovel clang against. Anyway, I just think, and that was different because that was more misbehavior than misquoting. But either way, apologies suck. Don't apologize, people. Own your shit. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. But it did. It did. I mean,. The whole quote, I mean, I don't know. The funny thing about it is when you issue like a written statement apologizing, we can obviously put it out, but it doesn't unring the bell. At the end of the day, you said what you said the first time around and people remember it. And most likely people are just going to remember that. Like he's the kid that said X, right? Just like to this day, Annie Murray is known as the guy who said that he would root against England no matter what. Even though, like, in years later, he's clarified what he meant, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he's still, that's held against people him get stuck unfairly. With, people get stuck with these young quotes, these quotes. Yeah. I mean, Sloan is always going to be, you know, the whatever she said about Serena and that ESPN article, no matter what, that's going to keep getting brought up. Yeah. Laura Robson will keep being the one who called everybody sluts. You know, it, yep. you get stuck with these things. and that's, It's not fair. It's just how it, but that's how right. the machine works. Right. Yeah, so in a rather amusing instance of Nick Kyrgios, I don't know id ego awesomeness i don't know what it is he proceeded to tweet because borna george did lose to stan Wawrinka uh fairly easily um one in four July. started out really bad for him. one in yeah. four yeah uh but nick curious uh tweeted um i guess Wawrinka was inspired by george's quotes or whatever something like that which at first I thought was like a dig, like kind of like speaking on behalf of his generation. Like, yeah, like we're super young and like the, the older generation has to bring their best to like beat us. But then I re- realized actually that's a dig against Chorich. It's completely against Chorich. <laughs> completely, yeah. So I misread it initially, but it was funny either way. I mean, this generation is pretty funny. Kyrgios, obviously, we talked about this before on the show. Like, I think I said I was thankful for him. I mean, he's so outsized in his personality and what he brings. And he's such a... 
he's kind of a part-time player right now. I mean, he's really scheduled very oddly. So we get these weird glimpses. And yeah, so that's pretty great. The whole young generation is going to be a big story this year. Guys like Chorich, like Sasha Zverev is going to probably be a pretty relevant person by the end of this year. Team. Uh, someone like Team. Yeah, Team's a little bit older, but yeah. Um, someone like a Kozlov, even a Jared Donaldson. You're going to hear. Kokonakis. I was Kokonakis, very exactly. impressed by Kokonakis. And yeah. I have been since he like he had that meltdown against Steve Johnson, I want to say, in qualifying last year at the Aussie. Um, but he's Two been one to watch. Ago, yeah. A couple years ago, maybe, yeah. But he's been he's definitely been one to watch and uh, have been very impressed by him this week. Yeah, so it's just a very – it's going to be a cool generation. I think maybe – I get the sense – that well, this is probably unfair to the current generation, but it almost feels like a little bit like tennis almost skipped a generation in terms of really being these big, big personalities, and now they're sort of coming back with with numbers, and it's cool, and it's. Uh, I'd love to see it on the women's side. Yeah, I think we're gonna get it too. I mean, I think maybe a little bit. I mean, Jeannie's kind of Benchich bringing is, forth a little bit of it. Benchich isn't doesn't have person doesn't have wild personality. I mean, in terms of like we're talking like seventies, eighties, like. Kind of some like true rivalries, both on and off the court, like a little bit of spit, a little bit of fire. I told you this uh, the other day. I miss Yulia Putin Seva so desperately. <laughs> I need her to come back and be a relevant person because she, oh. when she was relevant, semi relevant, when she was emerging as a you're possible using thing, relevance, you're you're throwing the relevance net very very broadly. No, you remember that <laughs> match she played against. Laura Robson in Doha or Dubai. Oh, for sure. But that, that was, was like amazing. Was that no, no, no. That was like a first, second round match. I don't. I know first. it wasn't like a relevant match on the standings, but like the drama and emotions of that match and the the thrusting that fist pump. Relevance that was not relevant. Nothing about that match was relevant other than it was entertaining. It was relevant to my happiness and my soul. <laughs> And the betterment of the sport as a as an organism that grows beautiful, amusing things. And I just all I'm saying, my 2015 hope, one of them is that Yulia Putinseva, Davai Ale Vamos is back onto the court, back into the top hundred, top fifty, and just does her thing because she <laughs> is special. I don't I don't disagree. There you go. There you go. We agree. The end. We agree. I'm just saying that, like, yeah, but, like, she's not relevant. She has never been relevant. I'm, I'm not going to buy that. She was a thing. She was a mild thing. Nope. Nah, disagree. Nope. Disagree. We have a couple questions we got in our email. We're always – our email <laughs> doesn't switch on and off. It's always there whenever you want to send us a thought. Uh, we also put on, you know, calls for questions on Twitter sometimes. But the email is always there. And we got a couple we're going to go through now. Uh, the first one is from Ahmed Mahmoud, who asks us, uh, your show's been around for almost three years. And that's true. We just start in February 20... That's incredible. Yeah, I know. It's a season four. When the show first came out, it was billed as an obscure tennis podcast. So Ahmed asks us, do you feel the podcast is still obscure? Uh, do the players listen to the show? And is there a reason why you guys won't interview a Federer or Nadal on the show? Do you feel that if you do so, you will end up being politically correct and discussing them? And that is not something you want. What are your thoughts on that, Courtney? First of all, reflect on season four. Like, we never thought we would get this long, I don't think. Right? I, I wasn't planning on it anyway. Definitely wasn't planning on it. I mean, the fact that I feel like this thing, as most things in my tennis writing career, kind of started out as a complete lark. Yep. Like, it was just, it was incredibly um, organic of just Ben and I, like, talking about tennis. We talk about it all the time. And... We usually do it over GChat, and we find, and it's actually way more efficient to do it over Skype. Yeah, that's true. Than GChat. Sometimes, like when we were in our GChat, I'm like, we should just Skype right now because this is ridiculous. Feel free to invite me whenever. I'm always there. I'm always ready. Well, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I know it is. Sad. <laughs> um. So yeah. So it's kind of it started out as a lark. So I kind of can't believe. I definitely can't believe that that it's still going strong. It's and episode ninety five. Yeah, and that people uh, enjoy it, which is amazing um, to me. So, yeah, it's it's been a little nutty. I mean, I, th I think that one of the most exciting things, and Ben and I have talked about it quite a bit over the offseason, is that we still know that there are a lot of things that we can do better uh, in the podcast. You know, more interviews, um, better production, <laughs> like, you know, maybe not sounding like, you know, we are recording from two respective basements, you know, and things like that. But at the same time, I do really love the one thing I really do love about our podcast is that it does seem kind of homespun. Yeah. Um, that it's not trying to be anything that it's it's it really is just I mean, I think I've written it before in our 
like about write-ups or whatever on on the uh, the podcast website that this is like we talk about tennis and once a week we turn on the bikes to do it for an hour hour and a half and this is what that is so yeah. um, I think that we've we've stayed true to that so that I'm very proud of yeah this, you should be I completely agree with all that it's been it's a pleasure getting to sort of document our tennis lives through this because these are really just conversations we would be having otherwise and now when it's a little more structured or conversations but, that we've already had that right. we're like we should talk we should probably bring this up on the podcast that's like, okay. often how it happens yeah <laughs> um but yeah it's been great and thank you very much for entertaining me for all these years courtney um for you know, agreeing. yeah because i think it was like hey you want to do this yeah sure you could have said no would have been fine but you it, didn't. It does seem to be a lot of that. Like even planning when we record, Ben's like, Ben will like shoot me a message like, when do you want to do it? And my answer to him is almost invariably, whenever. Yeah, whenever. Like it's all driven by Ben. So <laughs> he's the only one reason why this kind of gets gets done regularly, which is good. There you go. Second part of this question, uh, why do we not have Federer and Dahl on? To be frank, we haven't asked either Federer and Dahl. <laughs> It's, Mainly because I don't like being laughed in my face. Right. I mean, so that's just me. I don't know. Maybe you're different, Ben. We no. We we really really. I I don't relish that either. No, we haven't tried. I doubt they would want to do it. But we will try more for sure this year to get more guests on, on both the tournaments, and we'll try to get people on the phone too, which we've done before. I do suppose on some level, I I think about this sometimes that we do get to talk to the players quite a bit, you know, even in one-on-one situations um, across the board from top to bottom. And sometimes I forget that what doesn't seem new or interesting to me because I've done it so many times might be interesting to you guys. Yeah. And I know that sounds really weird, but yeah, like if I talk to X player all the time, it doesn't really feel like any conference, like asking them to do to be on the podcast makes sense. I don't know. But because it doesn't seem like new or interesting, but I have to like realize that you guys might find it interesting, in which case we should absolutely do So if do you it. have requests for who you want on the show, I mean, Federer and Nadal might be aiming a little bit high, but... Especially not... calling them a Federer and a Nadal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they are the Federer and the Nadal. Very <laughs> much so. So if you want to, but if you want to request for, I don't know, the Yarko Niemann, we can probably do that. Um, we should do a show with Yarko and Yarka. <laughs> Just to be confusing and have no other clear reason to put those two together. <laughs> that's like a that's like a weird take a number segment, Yarko and Yarka. Um yeah. That's uh yeah. Whoever you want, let us know. Also non players, we're happy to have more of on the show. People around the sport are often easier to get. We can do more of that too. So whatever you want, yeah, let us know. Our And to be fair, we have interviewed players where the interviews didn't end up being incredibly compelling. Oh, we had one in particular. I know which one you're talking about. I don't even think we should name her. No, I'll say no, it was no, a no, her. No, no, no. Do not name it. But like, you know, like we want, this is a fun podcast. We want to make sure that our guests have a good time, that they, and that they also kind of are able to put their best foot forward. And you that know? our I listeners mean, have a good time too. And yeah, and, they're listen, and our listeners have a good time. And I don't think that it's really helpful to put on like a player who's like incredibly boring. And you're like, oh, just that, not, this just makes you look bad. And and we don't want to do that to you. Like, yeah, and just thank you very fun. much for taking the time. That one was so, so bad. That one was yeah. so, so bad. It was just like was all so five word answers and just like and trying think, to get her to talk. And she would say. And I remember Ben and I like pulling a lot of like Jim and Pam looks <laughs> during the interview at each other being like, this is going terrible. Terribly. <laughs> like, can you believe this? Let's just pull the ripcord. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I remember when we walked out of there. I was like, "Well, we can't use that," and you were like, "Well," and I was like, "No, no, absolutely not, no way." So, sorry. I thought that there was there might have been like a stitchable, you know, because I was like, "Well, she spent, she gave us the time," but I she also was us, like, we, "We also cut it off after want... like five, six minutes because we'd already asked thirty questions in that time." And it yeah, just it was nothing. pretty brutal nothing was getting a bite so so yeah so that is to say there have been instances where interviews have happened where you guys really only one that was the only one right i thought there was another one but i could be wrong Eh, not that i remember but anyway possible yep there you go so hope yeah send us your request for season four this is your season two and we will do our best try my best try my best Yeah, one last question comes from Zachary Hertz, who asks, this is a very Courtney question, but I remember when, dis- <laughs> I know. But I remember when discussing Ernie's comments, Courtney talked about how her legal training had affected her take on the situation. And the Ernie comments, I think, were his comments about the 
the sister at yeah at the French Open. Yeah, so just to rehash, that was when he said he didn't want his sister uh, playing tennis because he thought it was women. It was too hard for women, essentially, in a nutshell. Courtney talked about how her legal training had affected her take on the situation. How often does that come up? Courtney, your background is a, as your background is unusual for a sports journalist, and as a lawyer myself, I was wondering how your former career affects your approach to tennis as a journalist and as a fan. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Zach. Courtney, That's, this is all uh, you. This is go. Ugh, Jesus. I think that anybody who goes to law school uh, knows that it changes the way that you think about the world and how you see the world. You become incredibly um, detached from things and, and you um, are really relying and really put a lot of faith in just analytics and in um, logic and what makes sense. And in addition to that, you become very wedded to language and linguistics and one word misused here or misused there, you know, when you're an attorney could mean millions, potentially billions of dollars that you've lost for a client because you worded a contract incorrectly that you used the instead of then or like whatever. So, yeah. So I think that that aspect of it definitely impacts how I write about the sport. I think I'm probably definitely very uh, sensitive about how some of the things that I write get headlined because headlines are typically not written by writers. They're written by by editors or or someone else. And they they can be very to me misleading. And what is and my um, my standard for what is misleading, I get the sense is much stricter than what other people might think. And so, yeah, I'm, inc- I'm incredibly kind of vigilant about that. Like, and so even that, even with players or even with an, uh, write-ups and things like that um, and analysis that I end up writing, I'm very like, I'll read it over and be like, well, is this really accurate though? You know, is this really, you know, did they really choke? Like I, I wouldn't yeah. even just use that word just to throw it out there. Like it's, it's, I'm pretty sensitive about that. So there are those things. I think more so than anything, it comes into a little bit with my interactions with the players. As an attorney, you're very sensitive to conflicts of interest. It's something that is t- paramount. Um, you can't have them. It's not even a question. If you have them, you need to disclose them. The client has to sign off on them. It's a whole thing. And you're really drilled about that. And so for me, I'm incredibly sensitive to that. So being friends with players, I can't. I really have a hard time doing it, um, even if I see them outside the confines of the sport. Like if I were to run into a player at a restaurant, I wouldn't say hi. Like, and that seems really weird. And I think everybody else does. Like, they'll like, like, all my colleagues would like stop and have the conversation like, hi, how are you doing all these sorts of things. And I generally tend to keep everything at arm's length. And I think that there's a part of me that thinks that that conversation is inappropriate, even though it's totally not. But like, my knee jerk response is that I wouldn't be able allowed to do that if it was like a witness in a case, or an opposing client or things like that, because there's all these rules about you know, talk to people when they're not around their attorneys. So I think that that's probably the biggest difference uh, that probably separates me from the way that my colleagues do their jobs. I can see that sometimes with my colleagues, they're a lot better than I am. And I totally and fully admit it, like of like getting into like, like, you know, really reporting, really getting into, you know, asking the questions, really digging up the dirt, you know, talking to all these different people, tracking people down. And I just have, because of my training, just a hard time doing that because I'm just used to interactions with adversaries, quote unquote, being regulated yeah, um, and having to be done in a very formal proceedings, which is why I love, you know, press conferences and why I love, you know, I'll do a one-on-one so long as WTA or ATP approves it or the, the player approves it. I kind of go by the rules across the board to make sure that I'm not doing anything underhanded or finding out information in an underhanded way um, that I consider underhanded, not that it's objectively underhanded. But yeah, that, that admittedly probably... Uh, is to my own detriment. One question, just because I've heard we obviously have had um, Julie and Linda, who are the uh, who are the stenographers who do the yeah. transcriptionists for ASAP. We're around at the tour a lot, and they also do a lot of courtroom stuff. And they've said that in terms of how they do the transcription, because they do a lot of different kinds of transcription, they do lectures and stuff like that also. But in general, the courtroom and the press conferences are pretty similar because it's question answer question answer. Um, do you find yourself using you know, tools or techniques or tactics or whatever when talking to players that you might have gotten or been taught during your law days? Um, I think one thing that I don't do that I don't think I've ever done, and I feel like uh, most other reporters have, I don't interrupt players when they're speaking. 
um, I ask my question and I give them an opportunity to respond. And even if I know that they're not answering my question, I let them go and do their whole thing. And then when they're done, I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. But that wasn't really what I was asking. What Mm -hmm. I was asking was this. And that's really inefficient, but that is how depositions work. That's how uh, questionings work. If you interrupt the witness, you get in a hell of a lot of trouble with the judge or the uh, opposing counsel, like those their hands up and accuses you of trying to like, you know, let my client answer the question, like that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, so that's something that, that I definitely know that I do, um, out of habits of mm. being a litigator. Interesting. Um, I think that, that just the way that I, that I phrase my questions and the pace with which I ask them, when you're a lawyer, the 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 court reporter, uh, the stenographer, transcriptionist is your best friend. They can either totally screw you or really make you sound much better in the transcript than you did um, in court or in deposition. And so you always want them on your side. So I'm extremely sensitive to, like, for example, to Julie and Linda. And they, they've mentioned it before and I've talked to them about it, that, you know, that my questions are, are paced, that sometimes it sounds weird when it comes out of my mouth but in written form it looks right um that's true and in transcripts um i was reading someone from brisbane this week and i know who i can tell who's in brisbane based on the questions <laughs> yeah people have distinctive styles of how they phrase questions and stuff and you i've never really spotted your questions per se that way in a transcript which is surprising because i've read so many that you've been in <laughs> there so, you go yeah i can't um, say that you have a really distinctive style on that you're pretty nothing stands out which is i think my good. tone is distinctive but the actual form of the question in is text they don't look distinctive in texas yeah but like if you were to hear the kind of sing-song way yeah. i ask a question you'd know that it was me yeah um you weren't a christina gutierrez in the court I didn't. were you stopping out oh my god she is just the worst yeah. yeah so anyways i mean i i think i there's no doubt that being a lawyer for for as long as I was like wouldn't bleed into what I do now um and it's still a process I think for me learning how to you know use the things that are good and kind of discard the things that are bad that that hold me back from doing my job as effectively as I should there you go uh speaking of the Courtney Nguyen origin story Courtney this has been a pretty exciting week it was a little over a week for fans of 40 Deuce. <laughs> Why don't I don't think it's exciting. <laughs> I think I'm excited by it as a former and current fan of 40 Deuce. Um, uh, it's true. Uh, before I ever met you, I was a big fan. Uh, what? Um, yeah, talk about <laughs> talk about the uh, the comeback of the site because I think it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So last week, um, I believe right before New Year's, I relaunched uh, 40 Deuce, which used to be a janky blog that was hosted on TypePad that didn't even have a proper URL. Um, it was the cowbell. Um, and had, I never understood that, by the way. It was more cowbell. Like, again, like people who know, know the origin story of 40 Deuce, which is that it literally started one night when I was drunk right. and I just started this website. So none of it was really well thought out. And I never thought that it would eventually lead, obviously, to where I am now. Um, so, yeah, so I relaunched it, got a new domain, got a new website, www.40deucetwits.com. Um, and, yeah, it's going to be – I hope it's going to be fun. Um, I don't know how much tennis will be on it. Um, a lot of it so far is kind of a mix of some tennis writing, some just kind of stupid crap. I have recipes for limoncello that if was, you want. That was fascinating. Why was it fascinating? Because it was so detailed and alternate <laughs> theories of limoncello making and suspending lemons in jars through like flavor osmosis. I didn't understand that at all. It was I think it's magic. And my mom is like a food chemist and I asked her about the whole process and she was confused by it as well. So yeah. maybe she's not a really good food chemist, which is entirely possible because she hasn't done it for like years. But um, yeah, so it's going to be just kind of a, a – it's effectively my internet business card. It's kind of ties in everything that I do, whether it's writing or podcasting or radio and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a blog. It'll just kind of be whatever I want it to be. Um, so it's fun. I just kind of thought it would be nice to start 2015 off with a place to just write stuff and not spell check it and not edit it and not reread it and not be worried about anything, you know, because that's what 40 Deuce was in its first iteration was just kind of first drafts. Uh, you wrote it and you hit publish right. and that was it. So it, it's pretty raw and it's not going to be perfect, but I think it'll be fun. Um, so yeah. There you go. Should be fun. I'm, I think it will be. So 
something else to look forward to. Drinking lots of limoncello helps it be even more fun. There you go. Have you? You're not ready to drink it yet, are, are you? It's like a long. No, no, no. Process. It's a long process. Yeah. One of them takes one month, uh, and then the other one takes ninety days. So, one of them will be ready when I get back from the Australian Open, and the other one will be ready uh, by the time Indian Wells rolls around. There you go. Should be fun. <laughs> We're going to finish the show as per usual with our rant rave segment. Courtney, what is the first thing you want to get off your chest in 2015 here? What's already got you worked up? Well, there's two things. I'm going to cheat and say the two things. The first one will okay. be incredibly quick. But I had the lovely pleasure of having my sister, my brother-in-law, and my niece uh, back here at home. They live in Tokyo. And they were here at home for the holidays for about a month and a half, which was amazing. And so in the course of it, it was like a lot of shopping and receiving of gifts uh, for my niece, who's just about, who just turned one a few days ago. And one of the gifts that she got that like kind of blew me away and it really, really, I really loved it was uh, she loves books even though she's less than one. She like will not play with toys, but she loves her books. And she loved Olivia and the fairy princesses. And I personally don't like Olivia generally That's because pig, I find her right? Yeah, it's the pig. Yeah. I find her to be a little too precocious and a little too adult and and obnoxious at times. But this particular book is fantastic. It's this great kind of a critique of fairy princess culture within little that everybody wants little girls to be little princesses and Olivia ain't having it at all. Um, The term corporate malfeasance comes up in the book, (laughs) which is my favorite, favorite moment of the book and made me laugh really loud. So if you have a young girl in your life, who's like under the age of, I don't know, five, six, seven, um, Olivia and the Fairy Princesses, please pick it up for that girl because it is amazing. And I want every girl, every girl growing up to read it. It's it's fantastic, especially in this age of Frozen, which was great and all, but whatever. Anyways, Olivia. Frozen really was, just for very brief time, Frozen really was like a total retro, you know, blonde princess musical thing. It was a totally, didn't feel like a very 2013 thing. It didn't. I felt, I thought Brave was a much more progressive princess tale but yet frozen was this bizarre was this incredible breakaway hit and maybe people don't need the princesses to be progressive no i I totally agree with that i mean it's an interesting thing with um because now having a niece like i've become totally obviously entrenched in the gendered aspect of how toys and kid media and all these things are like produced like it's all you see is like and i get so mad like i'm just like why can't everybody just have wood blocks and just call it a day like that's the only toy you need like stop with all this other crap and it's really really frustrating and i have a cousin who has a master's in education so we're talking a lot about um how toys are you know advertised and how obviously it makes way more they make more may way more money if they're gendered than if they're not because you can segment the market into girls and boys and then mm-hmm. you know whatever but it's just incredibly frustrating so but yeah, I mean, I think Frozen was great. I enjoyed it. Olaf's hilarious. But I personally just had more issues with it than I think most people did. And I'm still trying to figure it out because on its on its face, I should love it. The whole old, I, I have my younger sister. It's just the both of us. And she's very much Anna. And I'm very much Elsa. <laughs> um, if I could isolate myself in an ice castle very far away and proclaim that I'm trying to keep everyone safe, I would do it in a heartbeat and be happy. So long as the ice castle had Wi-Fi. So long as the ice castle, obviously. It's not going crazy, people. Yeah. Now, think of the limoncello. You could make it an ice castle. Wow. And, like, I love cold weather. Yeah. Like, it, it would just be perfect. But, yeah. So, I, but there were just different aspects of it where I'm like, why did they have to be princesses in the first place? Like, why did they have to be part of royalty or, I don't know. Yeah. I had okay. issues. Okay. So, that was one, that was one rant, or, sorry, my one rave that actually turned into a rant. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, but my other rave was today was the first day of the season where the tennis channel aired live te- live tennis, which was fantastic. Yes. And it was made even more fantastic by the fact that that live tennis, uh, which was first in Auckland and then Brisbane, was commentated by Mary Carrillo and Lindsay Davenport. And it was like the most fun I've had in the tennis season so far, just listening to them banter back and forth and be hilarious while offering some really great insight 
Um, and I thought that it was really, really cool that Lindsay Davenport was game to answering a lot of questions about her coaching situation with Madison Keys. Mm-hmm. So, and Mary Carilla was playing the good reporter and asking her all the right questions. So, whenever those two are commentating, they are to me the GOAT tennis commentating team. They are my favorites. And uh, it was just really fun. So I hope that that continues. Although I, I guess Lindsay's flying off to Australia. But she'll be, uh, but she'll be working for Tennis Channel while she's there. So she will be. She will they be. should yeah. be doing some Australian Open stuff. Not that we'll be able to. I don't, do we get Tennis Channel in, in Melbourne and Media Center? I don't think so. We, no. Yeah, we might not. Anyway, though, that's pretty good. I will say also it's tough because a lot of people don't get Tennis Channel. And like the Tennis Channel everywhere thing. I admittedly don't understand exactly what that is or how it works. It doesn't seem to be. Um, I only a great just thing. learned this yeah. week that Tennis Channel Plus, which is like this new dedicated site, is like an add-on. You have to actually pay for it. Just because you're a Tennis Channel subscriber doesn't mean you get that. Yeah. And that is baloney. There you go. But it I will like say, I will but, say yeah. on the off, on the opposite side of that that their coverage today, the center court thing they do with like the roaming between tournaments is incredible. Like you think about what tennis was like even five years ago. The idea they could have a broadcast that showed you a match in Brisbane that went to Hopman Cup and then went to Auckland and then back to Brisbane and then back to court one in Brisbane for Lepchenko Kudryatseva. Like that's incredible. The sort of roaming thing we have and with red it zone. was it was it's very tennis red zone. Exactly. And it was very, very exciting, very cool glimpse of the future. Um, this week is a really inundating week because it has Doha 2 and Chennai a little bit less so. So there's a huge, huge, huge spread of time zones. So there's like tennis 22 hours a day this week. And it's a lot. And I think they really handled it pretty well. And it just makes me excited for the future when every match will theoretically be streamed and it could be just complete overload. And I like that. I will say this. If ever, whether it's Tennis TV or ESPN three tennis channel or the WTA or ATP. If any of these entities ever actually fully invest as they should at some point into a product that is effectively NFL red zone for tennis, which if for those people who don't know what NFL red zone is to show every Sunday on the NFL network that lasts the full day from first ball to last ball that zips around from game to game. And you could just like sit there and just lie down and watch it. It shows the important moments, like important moments of all the games. Right. They'll be like, and there's, you know, first and goal over here. And it's great. And it's a really well done. It's just phenomenal. If any of these entities actually want to do it, I would love to be one of those people that's on the couch. I will do it for the whole day. Like, I will sit there. I won't pee. And I'll just, like, <laughs> you just have to, like, banter about it. Like, the NFL's Red Zone guy is awesome. And he'd never, like, yeah, he do- the, his famous thing is he, do- he doesn't pee the entire time. He knows so much. He's incredibly knowledgeable. He's able to zip around. And then when there are dead moments and nothing's going on, he can also entertain people as well with commentary. Anyways, it's great. And tennis needs to needs to have it. And even as good as Tennis Channel's center court is, it still could be improved, like, massively. Because it still sticks to certain matches for too long. I'm still hung up on there being a guy who his thing is he's known for not peeing. Well, he's also known for being really good, but one of the running jokes was that okay. he doesn't key. And, and and an NFL day can go if you talk about like four games, four staggered games, talking, you know, 12, 13, 14 hours standing up. Yeah, my rave is also technology based. For Christmas, I got my dad a Roku plug-in for the TV, Ooh. which he's been using some, but I've been using a lot more. So it's turned out to be more of a gift for myself, which I feel only mildly guilty about. It is so incredible having... All the streaming on the big TV, it makes it so much easier and better, and everyone should buy one of these things if you don't already have one. It's like most people have some equivalent of this. I mean, you could do it from a while back through your PlayStation or Apple TV or whatever. It's not a new concept, but it's new to our home, and it is pretty damn cool. Just the the on-demandness of it. Being able to pull up and watch a bunch of Eurovisions on the YouTube app, just the full show, three hours of a set. It was great. Highly recommend it. Makes consuming streamable stuff very very easy and it just felt like the future that was nice so yeah i got the roku box for my parents a couple years ago and it changed everything yeah like my parents used to never turn on the tv and now they've like actually like reached the end of netflix wow like net like like netflix doesn't they're like we don't know what to recommend to you for you to watch like you've watched everything like they and they really enjoy it they're retired so yeah it was one of the best and it's not crazy expensive it's it's one of the best investments oh, the one i, I got was just a little looks like a flash drive the smaller yep. version it was yeah like yeah, yeah. 60 dollars yeah 50 60 dollars yeah. or something so it was totally 
totally affordable and just Netflix is like $7 a month on top of it, but worth it. Yeah. So if you do that, if you have Netflix and then you also have Hulu plus, uh, and you have Amazon, if you have those three, you can pretty much go and cut the cord. Yeah. Cause you can subscribe to like episodes, like current TV on Amazon or watch it on, on Hulu. And then you have so much other content from Netflix. Yeah, so. The only thing you really need on top of that for live TV is live sports, which That's we just talked about before. So it all yeah. comes kind of full circle, weirdly. So I feel like I should leave it right there with that nice little bow on it. Although if you have Watch ESPN, you can actually stream that through Roku and you're good. Yeah, you do. You can. That's right. So there you go. We will hope that all of you enjoy the rest of the lead up to the Australian Open. Our next show will be from Australia. Uh, we leave for there in a few days. So It'll sound a little bit weird because we'll be upside down, you know, being in Southern Hemisphere, but we'll manage. And it's going to be a fun time. In the meantime, thank you for following us all the normal ways on Twitter, at NCR underscore tennis. You can like our Facebook page. We'll try to have more Facebook-only content in 2015, if it was a doable resolution. Uh, Facebook.com slash no challenges remaining for updates when the show goes up and, you know, feed, whatever, and more posts and you can also subscribe to us on itunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is and leave us reviews there any last words to kick off 2015 i'm already screwing it up i'm really looking forward to going to the dirty dumpling place in melbourne so good so good we'll leave it at that. that will be that will be that will be our well not our well yeah our first awesome meal it's like a i kind of feel like that's a uh like a new year's ritual you know it's, totally it's like a are equivalent of like red envelopes but instead of being red <laughs> envelopes they're made out of dough and are filled with not money dumplings but... covered with red spicy hot oil it's just nice oh, everything nice. about that sounds great and then walking out and it's so hot and you just sweat out all that grease it's amazing <laughs> and not disgusting whatsoever no it's totally totally not gross at all look for looking forward to that i'll see you Word. i'll see you down there See you down under. Good eye. Bye. Good eye. Have a good one. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Bye. This is it for me. I'm gonna die. All right. Fair enough. Any last words? Uh, kangaroo, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>